You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new film, Moon, our guest today, Duncan Jones, creates a science fiction thriller about a solitary lunar employee who finds that he may not be able to go home to Earth so easily. Moon, which premiered at the 2009 Sundance Film Festival, is Jones's feature film debut. It will open in New York and Los Angeles June 12th. Duncan Jones, welcome to Film School. Hi, how you doing? Thank Good. you for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. How are you doing today? Excellent. Getting nervous now, obviously, because the film comes out this week. <laughs> well, just nervous because you're so excited about how great it is, right? <laughs> sure, why yeah. not? <laughs> yeah. well, it, it, it truly is. And I've, I've got to ask you right off the bat, what, what started your interest in science fiction? Uh, what, was your first, uh, int- what was your introduction to the genre? Oh gosh, I've been a—I mean, I've been a sci-fi fan for as long as I can remember. Okay. Um, I remember one of the one of the things that that we had. Um, my dad sort of had some very early technology. He had, a, he had an old Sony U-Matic tape player, video player, um, back when I was a little kid, and we had what must have been a pirate copy of Star Wars on three tapes. The technology <laughs> was that old; you had to have three tapes to show a film. Yeah. And um, I was kind of king of the geeks at school because, that, you know, the kids could all come over to my place and we would watch Star Wars and no one else really knew about it. Okay. So that, that was pretty cool. No, <laughs> so yeah, I, started, I can imagine. It started me young anyway. Yeah. Now, and as, as you progressed through that, did you, did you always follow sci-fi? Was, was there a follow-up movie after uh, Star Wars or Blade oh, Runner? All sorts of things, really. I mean, um, I guess, you know, there was, I mean, I was, I was quite an avid reader as well. So, um, you know, my, my, my dad was really kind of... Um, he, he used to feed me a lot of literature to read, so I was reading sort of George Orwell's um, Animal Farm in 1984 uh-huh. and John, John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. And, uh, you know, I sort of started off with sci-fi like that and then moved on to Philip K. Dick and J.G. Ballard and later on William Gibson. So, you know, quite, quite a spread. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, Philip K. Dick, we love him here in Orange County. He taught up in Fullerton for a while, and he hated ah. he hated the place, too. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> so that's yeah. why we love him so much. <laughs> now, uh, tell us... how. Excuse me, how did this film begin for you? What, what is the, the seed that planted this film in your head? Well, it really kind of um, all, took, all started about three years ago. I met up with Sam Rockwell for a completely different project. It was a different script. Um, and I'd sent it through, you know, through formal channels. I'd gone through his agent, and uh, the agent had liked the script, and Sam had read it, and he'd loved the script. But the problem was that I had wanted Sam to play a supporting uh, role in the film, and it was kind of, it was a villain. It was a villain's role. And um, Sam was really, you know, he, he loved the script, and he loved the lead character, and he wanted to play the lead. So we actually met up in New York, and Sam was trying to convince me, and I was trying to convince him. And I was a bit naive, you know. I, did, I, I didn't sort of, I was thinking it so much through my own sort of point of view, my own perspective that he needed to play this part, but, um, and that wasn't going to work out. But we got, we got on really well, and we just started talking about films that we both loved and the kinds of roles that Sam would be interested in doing. Um, and the thing was, I was such a huge Sam Rockwell fan that I, and, and having finally met him in person and, and, and realizing what a wonderful, really uh, nice guy he was, um, and what a creative, intelligent guy he was, I just knew that he was the person I wanted to work with on my first film. So, um, you know, I just said, look, rather than doing this project, which is obviously not going to work, let's work on something else. I'm going to write something for you um, that's, that's for you to play the lead and, you know, to get the best out of you and do the kind of, a kind of role that you want to do. 
And, um, and that's how Moon kind of started. Did he have any input as far as uh, how the plot developed? And No, not really. Before? Basically, the, the, all that happened was from that initial discussion, um, there, was a, there was this kind of trio of films that we both agreed that we loved and missed, mm-hmm. um, which was the, these sci-fi films from the late 70s, early 80s, in particular Outland that, used to, that was starred right. Sean Connery, um, Bruce Dern in, in Silent Running, um, and then Ridley Scott's Alien, and in particular the first half of Alien, because Alien's obviously always remembered as a horror film, but when you actually watch it, uh, about the first, you know, over the first half of the film isn't a horror film. It's just this really interesting investigation of what life would be like on, on this spaceship. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's how we, that's what we wanted to do is we wanted to approach this, tell the story of a blue-collar guy working in, in the future in kind of an industrial uh, facility. And, and then obviously we go off, we, we sort of take a, we go off on, on, on a tangent from there. But that's kind of the initial setup that we wanted. I, you have been a, a, a commercial director uh, in the that's past. That's correct, in the UK, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I love the commercial at the beginning of this film. Uh, <laughs> is that something that, uh, did you incorporate things that you learned in, I'm sure you did, but are there uh, little references from uh, your commercials in that short? Um, well, to, in, in, I guess so, but in, it's funny actually. The, 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 the UK commercials industry is, is kind of different than the US commercials industry in the in the in the way that they approach commercials. Um, and and I would have to say that the commercial at the start of Moon is more you, you know, more American in style than mm-hmm. than British in style. Um, so it was really, you know, I was just watching and referencing an awful lot of of uh, petroleum companies um, and the kind of advertising that they're doing right now to sort of, you know, prove their their environmental credentials. Um, and and there was quite a few of those commercials to watch, and there was there was kind of a common a common thread amongst them, and that's really what I kind of latched onto to to make our our lunar industries ad. It's Not- such it's such a beautiful conceit that. By burning more fossil fuel, we're somehow saving the environment, and that's essentially how how these things play out. Sorry. No, I was I was just going to say you said there's a difference between uh, British and American commercials. What what is that difference? How would you characterize that? Um, I think it will. I think it it it's sort of tied in in some ways to um, the differences in in humor as well. Uh-huh. Um, I think British humor tends to be more self-deprecating, <laughs> and, and American humor is, is in some ways more aggressive. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think British, British commercials play upon that, because comedy is such a big part of British commercials on the whole. Um, so, so it kind of lends itself to, you know, that the commercials are, are more self-deprecating in some ways. Um, but then in the more serious, in the more serious um, sort of non, non-comedy commercials, there is just, there is a real... Slickness of, st- of slickness of style, I think, to a lot of uh, to too many British British commercials. I mean, everyone's got sort of cheap crap ones that you get on late at night. But there's also this there's a really there's some really talented commercials directors in the UK. It's funny over the sweep of the last twenty or thirty years watching American television as much as I do. Yeah, you, you see, you you do actually have seen a, a, a significant shift in style and tone. It used to be almost. The majority of ads were serious. Yeah. And the majority yeah. of ads used to be more informative, more sort of hard fact. Yeah. Now the majority of ads are funny. It's almost the exception for them to not 
upbeat in some way humorous. So it's That's completely true. shifted uh, yeah. in terms of the approach uh, to the American public. Certainly the one place where they maintain the sort of seriousness, serious tone is those petroleum company yeah. <laughs> environmental acts. The, the, company, the companies that are doing the most damage to the world <laughs> yeah. are the ones that are the most serious. You know, the, the, the GEs, the Monsantos, the, you know, all, the, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. So. Well, I was sold on the commercial. I'm wondering where I can get my Lunar Industries <laughs> ski cap. Well, hey, I, um, I did a screening. I did a screening of the film in, in, in Houston at the NASA Space Center. And um, mo- a lot of our audience were NASA, you know, people who worked at NASA. So that, and, you know, during the Q&A of that, of, of that event, um, there was a, an awful lot of talk about helium-3 mining and the prospects for it and, you know, the fact that they are actually working on it. So mm-hmm. helium-3 mining is, is on the horizon. It may, might, might take 10 or 20 years, but it's, it's going to happen at some point. Well, we're speaking with, uh, we're talking with Duncan Jones. The film is Moon. It will be coming out in Los Angeles and in New York this coming Friday, which is June 12th. Uh, all over, I, I don't ex- um, it's in Los Angeles, uh, it, it starts off. It starts off on the on the on the twelfth in Los Angeles, and New York. I don't have specific venues, but yeah. uh, but I know it sort of rolls out and, and increases in different cities every week. You know, I saw it playing at the ArcLight on the eleventh. So oh, maybe right. they, maybe they have something a, a sneak preview on on a Thursday night there. Mm. But I, I'd assume they'll keep going on the twelfth. I just couldn't find anything past yeah. that. Yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about the hard science in this film. Yeah, I, I wanted to because three. yeah, there, you you just mentioned the helium three. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, there's a lot of very hard science in this film, sort of informational stuff that we're on the cutting edge. We're on the cu- we're on the edge of really exploiting. Go, go ahead. Absolutely, yeah. There was a, well, there was actually you know during my during my research for writing the original story of this, there was a there was a book that I read a long time ago, which I sort of went back to by a, an author, Robert Zubrin, and it's a nonfiction book. Um, and and uh, Mr. Zubrin used to work, I think, in conjunction with NASA, um, and he wrote a book called Entering Space. Um, which, which I recommend to anyone who's interested in space travel. But it's, it's basically uh, uh, a, a tr- um, a, an idea of how you could actually colonize the solar system and do it in a way which would be fiscally viable. Um, because right now we don't have a Cold War anymore. So, you know, we don't have that impetus for us to go into space and spend the huge amounts of, you know, the billions of dollars we would need to to do it. And Private industry can, can only take us so far. I mean, I know Richard Branson has Virgin Galactic and, and sort of the idea of, of, uh, of uh, private citizens wanting to go into space can, can get you a certain way into space and get, get you into low Earth orbit. But to actually set up facilities and actually, you know, colonize the, the solar system, we're going to need to have some kind of reason to go out there. We're going to have to have a profit motive. Um, and, and one of the chapters was about how going to the moon and setting up a mining facility to mine helium-3 was, was one of the first things you could do, which would actually start to pay for itself. Um, but, but, but the catch is that we would have to have fusion power working. Um, and that's something that we're still, you know, we're still a, a decade or so away from actually having working. Without turning us into a science class. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. No, no, this is good because our audience is very well educated. They'll uh, understand this. We currently use a fission system correct. in order to produce nuclear power, which essentially takes an atom, splits it, so you're exp- uh, you're you're. That, that's how the energy is released. released. With, with fusion, you're yeah. actually sort of you're mashing them together. It's it's a different approach, and it would create vast amounts of energy. And it's not it doesn't have the waste that you have to deal with with fission. In yeah, that's correct. But in particular, if you use helium three as your as your fuel, so that's important to the process of fusion as opposed to fission. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And and the, and the bizarre thing about it is that helium three 
that the, the, the actual scientific fact is that helium-3 is, is very rare on the Earth, and even where it does occur, it's very expensive and difficult to actually um, to, to, uh, harvest it. Whereas on the moon, it's literally, you know, sitting on the first few inches of regolith, you know, the, the lunar soil. You, you literally just scoop it up, you, you cook the soil at a high temperature, and the helium-3 gas is released. Um, and there's enough up there for hundreds of years' worth of, of energy for the entire planet. And, and that's what uh, Sam Rockwell's character, Sam Bell... And that's Bell, his job. Yeah, is, his job is, is to run this mining facility and to look after the harvesters and make sure that the helium-3 is delivered back to Earth on a regular basis. Yes. Now, now, Sam Rockwell looked like he, he went to hell and back in this, in <laughs> well, this film. Well, initially, He's, no. I mean, let's. I don't want to well, give any. No. Well, during the course of the film, yeah. there's, there's a lot of changes for his character. My goodness, did, yeah. did, did, uh, did it ever stress him out? Did you ever feel a time where, where they, uh, there was a time where the character was, was, was getting into him? <laughs> um, I, think, you know, I think that happened a few times and for a few different reasons. But, you know, uh, Sam's a, a, a consummate professional. And, and, and um, I think the, the fact that he is pretty much on his own for most of the film, uh-huh. and, and as an actor, he's on his own. He doesn't, have any, he doesn't have other actors to sort of pal around with or joke around with or or just sort of relax with, I think that really, in, in a very method way, it kind of put him into the right headspace for uh, the character. So it was actually very, very beneficial to the film. But obviously it was uncomfortable and difficult for Sam um, because, you know, he was, he's, a, he's a very sociable guy and, and he didn't have anyone to sort, of, to sort of just relax with. It was basically me and him and then this, this small crew that was kind of just following us around in this moon base that we built. You know, that's another thing, important part of, I think, what you're describing, and that is you constructed a set where you literally cl- uh, climbed into it every day, and that's where you, you filmed the, the movie. We, we, um, we were based at Shepperton Studios in England, yeah. and uh, we had two sound stages. One of the sound stages was the same one that was used for the Nostromo in Alien, um, and we actually built our, our moon base, uh, the Serang, in, in that sound stage. And it was a 360-degree set with a lid on it, with the lighting built into the set. So basically we went in there, and then we were, you know, we'd, go in and we'd go in through the airlocks in the morning, and then they'd close the door, and we'd shoot there all day. Oh, and and wow. we were basically in the base. That's, <laughs> so did, did this really, I mean, obviously you're talking about Sam's... Uh, sense going yeah. into this did this contribute to you and the crew's sense that you you were in some way Ab- really on yeah. the moon Ab- well, it, it certainly <laughs> you know there was there was a there was a little craziness that went on because we, we we did you know we did feel very cooped up and it was um it was it was uncomfortable and, and it did play upon some people but you know we we everyone made the sacrifice and we got through it now kevin spacey who plays gertie the uh computer robot in this yeah. uh has a very fun role did he take part in any of uh visit the stage at all or and when was his uh voice recorded um it was recorded after the fact okay. it was after we'd finished uh, editing the film and the, the way it worked is we actually uh got the script to him before we shot the film and um he he read the script and loved it and uh he loved the fact that sam rockwell was doing it he was a big fan of sam's so i met up with kevin spacey at the old vic theater which is you know where he which he runs in england and um, I had a talk to him about it, and he was really concerned about the budget. And he was saying, look, I love the script. I love Sam. I, I'm sure you're going to do a great job, but I just don't understand how you can do this for $5 million, which was basically what our budget was. Yeah. Um, and, and he said, you know, because it's just a voice, why don't you make the film without me? And 
if it looks great and it doesn't look like the set's built out of shoeboxes and bits of string, um, I'll, I'll be involved. But right now, I really just want to sort of wait and see what the film turns out like. So we just went ahead with it. We, just, we made the film without him, without, with no guarantee that he'd be involved. Um, but as soon as we finished it, we made a rough cut. We put in some, some temporary special effects um, and showed it to him. And he was so blown away by Sam Rockwell's performance. He said, yeah, I definitely want to be involved. Right. That's now, how it happened. Well, can I just say, Kevin Spacey, I love the fact that he, in a way, plays off of the idea of Hal. Completely. But completely. he doesn't really play off. I mean, he does... But he takes it. He takes it in a very good direction, and I, I just I love that. I love that this is sort of an iconic kind of. It could be. It was an iconic role, and yeah. now he's taken and, and really turned it into something of his own. I think so. I mean, I think that was kind of the approach that we took. Is that there's, there's two ways of doing this. You can either you know pretend that 2001 and Hal never existed and just look like quite foolish, or what you can do is you can know that most of your audience is going to be aware of Hal and that they're going to be immediately making assumptions about Gertie based on their experiences with Hal, and you can play with that expectation. I think that's what Kevin, Kevin and I were able to do is you know is let let the audience think that they know where we're going because then we can take them in a very different direction and surprise them. Now, you spoke about uh, the film being shot on the same uh, stage as Alien. Yeah. Um, and Bill Pearson was involved, the, the yeah. model creator behind Alien. Did that just happen to work out, or did you specifically go after him? No, it was <laughs> it was one of those wonderful coincidences. Um, uh, Bill's got this uh, amazing little model miniatures sort of shop, or he builds props as well um, for, um, at Shepperton Studios. Um, and we were, you know, we were there and we were surrounded by all these massive films which are getting made at the same time. So Ridley Scott was next door doing Robin Hood. Angels and Demons was a couple of sound stages away. Um, Richard Curtis was doing The Boat That Rocked. And then the writer's strike hit and um, all of those films went down. Um, and we became the only game in town. Um, so, and there's all these crews hanging out that you know didn't have any films to work on, um, and and we were able to just kind of pick and choose people. And wow. Bill Pearson was one of those people that we just swooped down on like a hawk <laughs> um, and grabbed. Another one was Peter Talbot, who was a model miniatures cinematographer who used to do, who normally does the James Bond films. So we we got him as well. Yeah, that's that that's very fortunate. You you were able to score them. Did can are there models in the film that you can point to for me that I can say? I don't know if I want them to. Uh, you don't, <laughs> I do. So just cover your. I'll cover my ears because this is such a beautiful film. In the sense that I was looking for models. I was trying to figure out what was models and what wasn't, and I, for the life of me, could not. Wow. So. Well, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. Everything <laughs> everything outdoors is models. You know, I suspected it, but <laughs> yeah. I honest to God, I I real, I'm not. Not just because you're here. I'm not. I really looked for for some tail tail sign that those were models, and I couldn't. No, I mean, I, we we were we you know we had an approach, and and again, going back to the commercials world, um, I've done this before in commercials, and 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 kind of have this this hybrid, this kind of blend look where you shoot as much in camera as possible, and then you add post production, and you kind of beautify it afterwards, and that's kind of how we approached this. We we shot as much as we could in camera with model miniatures and with the sort of the lunar landscape that we built, but then we had this amazing company in. Cinesite, who, who normally works on much, much bigger budget films, and they were able to come in and do all of the, all of the, you know, the touching up work and the beautification and really making it feel like something different, feel like not just models, something yeah. a bit more than that. Uh, is that touching up I have to do with lighting too? Because uh, I, I, I just love the way you use light in the film. Is, did they, were they doing a lot of that? 
Yeah, we put it. We, no, we, we did a fair amount of work, um, sort of adding flares here and there, and yeah. then there was all the, there was quite a lot of dust work as far as making dust come off the back of vehicles and right, um, right. The, all sorts of little extenuations. Then the obvious things like painting out, you know, uh, fishing line or, <laughs> or titanium wire where you could see it pulling the vehicles along. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and uh, yeah. So there was there was all sorts of work. The digital set extension as well because the set that we had for the lunar exterior was only thirty foot by forty foot. So uh, the mountains that go off into the distance in the film were obviously added in because we could only actually, we only had the space. Uh-huh. We could only afford to the space to create this, this small area of, of lunar landscape that the vehicles would actually drive on. Well, uh, there, there is inevitable. By the way, we're speaking with Duncan Jones. The film is called Moon, and it opens this Friday in L.A. and New York and eventually across the universe yes. somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, um, I... I got to tell you, because there, I, there's an inevitable comparisons here to some of the uh, sort of, as I referred to earlier, as the iconic works. Uh, 2001 comes to mind. Yeah. Um, now, I really, in, if, if I'm making a Kubrick reference to this film, it, it's more of The Shining to me. In, oh, that's interesting. The yeah. atmospherics of it, especially the first maybe the isolation maybe half too. hour of the film, yeah. where he, when he's in isolation, I really felt like it was, it felt very much like The Shining to me. That's, so. that's wonderful. I mean, I've never actually. No one said that before, but I can. I can certainly understand where you're coming mm-hmm. from. I mean, it is. He is. He is uh, fundamentally a caretaker, so it, it does kind <laughs> of make sense. Yeah, yeah and then yes. Yeah, so, uh, but uh, I, my question is: Is are you a fan of Bewitched? <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a huge fan of Bewitched. Uh, what I particularly love was that little no- that little noise that you yeah. get every time she wiggled her nose. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you included that because uh, I was waiting for that little twitch, and, and you, you, you you put it in there. I thought that was great. <laughs> and it's another film I have to ask you about too. Whether whether you were familiar with this or, or drew on it all is is uh, Solaris. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it, those those ones. You know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I guess there's there's references. There's references in there which are more subconscious than, than, than conscious ones. And, and Solaris obviously got in there some way through the subconscious because, because really the ones that we were really looking at um, and that we, that we loved them and that we wanted to reference were, were Outland and Silent Running and, and Alien. Mm-hmm. Um, but Solaris is obviously in there and, and uh, 2001 is in there and there's a bit of Blade Runner in there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically all my favorites are in there. <laughs> Now, now, I want to get to the music before we, we let you yeah. go here, too. Kurt Mansell, uh, he's he's done Pie. He's worked with Darren Aronofsky. You're, you're correcting me, Mike? Clint, is it Clint? Clint? Yeah, Clint. Clint. Yeah, yeah, Clint, Clint. Sorry about that. Um, how did you run into him? How did uh, that work out? <laughs> well, um, actually, I, I, I met Clint before we made the film once. And um, it was a, it was a concert. I think he was doing like a like a a, a get together of, of Pop Will Eat Itself, which was the band that he, he used yeah. to be in. Um, and they were playing in London, and I met up with him, and uh, we got on very well. And then that, basically that was it. I didn't see him again for years. Um, and then when we were making the film, um, I was using an awful lot of his uh, of his previous scores from films like Requiem for a Dream and and, and Pie and other things. The Fountain as, as well. That yeah, was, well, actually, yeah. No, we weren't using the Fountain at that time, but yeah. but we were using bits of his music. We were also using bits of music from the Insider, which I think is another fantastic score, um, as sort of placeholder 
um, in in uh, the, in Moon while we were editing it. And um, I was talking to my producer, and I was saying, you know what? I don't know where we're going to get music as good as this. Why can't we just get Clint Mansell to do it? And he basically said bluntly, he's way out of our budget. Um, so, so what I did is, um, is, is I approached him directly. I was able to get hold of him because he's based out in L.A. And, and sort of behind his agent's back, I uh, sent him a copy of, of the rough cut of where we were with the film and, and the concept artwork and just sort of really tried to get him excited about it. And it really didn't take much. He, he was really into it very, very rapidly. And he said, look, we'll find a way to, to make this work. I really want to do the film. Right. Um, and that's, that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. It's, you know, a, it, it's, it's beautiful works, work. Yeah, it works work. wonderfully well with the film. I and, think so. I think he's very proud of it as well, yeah. actually. So um, yeah. I, I feel good that it's a, it's a score that he's, that he's very proud of. It's, it's a deliberately and beautifully placed film. In the editing, uh, how did that go? Uh, did did it, you have a lot? Of, yeah, it, it had multiple stages. We had, um, I had a, a terrific, very experienced editor in Nick Gaster who did the, you know, who, who was actually doing the assembly edit while we were shooting the film. And then he, he brought the film to a really good um, state. Um, by the time, unfortunately, he had to move off and go off and work on another film. Um, so it, it basically went, it came back to myself and my, my, my regular commercials um, editor, who I normally work with in commercials land, um, who had been brought on as the VFX editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I made some sort of final changes and some tweaks here and there and, and tightened the film up a little bit more. Um, and that was really kind of the, how the editing works. But it was, it was, it was a difficult one because... There's over for an independent film. We have an, a, a ridiculously large number of effect shots. There's over 450 effect shots, wow. and um, wow. because those shots were doing were being were being made after the assembly edit had been finished, the, the edit was constantly stretching and tightening as those effect shots get, got slid, slipped into the film. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of on, an ongoing process, which was obviously frustrating for, yeah. for Clint Mansell yeah. and everyone because the film kept on, kept on changing length. Um, but that's just kind of what had to be done to make the film work. Well, before we let you get out of here, I just have to say one more kudos to uh, Sam Rockwell. Absolutely. I, I think it's just important to... to, to recognize just what a remarkable uh, acting achievement I think he is. Truly the most underrated American actor, and I think if there are any awards who are willing to put him up for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor for this film, (laughs) (laughs) I think he deserves it. Yeah, he does. Very, very good. Well, Well, congratulations on a wonderful film. The film is Moon... Well, which, real what? quick, before you get away, what are you working on now? Sorry. Um, well, you know, obviously I'm doing an awful lot of support for this film right now. Um, and uh, there is another science fiction film I'm very much hoping to do, but it's sort of gone out to actors. And we kind of have to see how Moon does first to see whether there is an audience to, for this kind of smart sci-fi. If there is, then hopefully I'll get the chance to make this next one. We'll come back uh, and join us for that one as well. I'd love yeah. to. We'll, we'll do the, our best to work up an audience of, of smart sci-fi <laughs> fans for you. The Thank film? you, Mike. Thanks, Nathan. All right. Thank you for being on Film School. You're very welcome. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash Film School.